Less than a month later, my friend's parents met with my father, toting along a stack of paperwork. And little did I know that that was the beginning. They were building my cocoon. Hello, my loves, and welcome to the Kindred Sage podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Brianna, and I'm on a mission to energetically up-level my life and teach you how to do the same. To raise your vibrations, re-examine your perception of self, and nourish the confidence to create an extraordinary experience here on Earth. Are you ready to expand with me? Let's dive in. Hello, hello, beautiful humans. I am back. I am back. I want to apologize first because if I sound stuffy, I am on the uh, the tail end of a pretty gnarly cold. Um, I'm actually not even sure if it was just a cold, but I was doing a lot of traveling. And I was out in Texas for a little over a week and I came home feeling nice and refreshed and excited to jump in to new projects. And a couple days in, boom, it hit. I got a sore throat. My lymph nodes were super swollen and uh, it kind of laid me out flat. (laughs) And so I've been slowly regaining my energy. My brain is back. My energy is back and my body is getting there. We're probably like mm, 95 to 96% better. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just a slow process. Sometimes, uh, that congestion wants to linger. And so I apologize if I sound, uh, a little stuffed up, but I am, and I'm getting through it and I'm not letting it be an excuse for holding myself back because I am ready to share with you part two of my story, which I think of as the cocoon of my life. Let's kind of take it back. So I I left y'all hanging with the divine invite to join a friend from school and her parents on a spring break trip to Northern California, to Chico, California, to be specific. And after begging my father to let me go, uh, he finally said yes. And I packed the few clothes that I had and I set off on my grand adventure. I hadn't really traveled much as a child. Um, A few trips to LA, a trip to Hawaii, uh, a few trips to like the Julian area, like camping in Idlewild. But that was really the most that I knew about the big world out there. So on this road trip to Chico, I used this small uh, collapsible map that I had found. um, And I plotted a sticker, this little chicken sticker, all the way up the five as we moved closer and closer to Chico. And wow, this was far from home for me. But my heart was so excited. And this was really giving me distance from her, my stepmom, and the daily craziness of my life at that point, or at least I thought. I remember arriving at their home and my friend's father was in the service and had been stationed in San Diego after 9-11. So his wife and daughter decided to go down with him um, and live in San Diego while their older son, who was still in high school at the time, held down the fort in Chico. So we arrive at their home and my eyes were so wide, like wider than a deer in headlights. I was enthralled by the freedom and the fun and the wild space and permission that I had to be a child because 
most of my childhood was not that. Most of my childhood was survival mode. And I had learned to not be heard, not be seen, not provoke any kind of um, emotional response from my stepmom and my father. So I was very much a quiet child that hadn't really experienced a lot of companion time. Um, and this was one of the best weeks of my life. I mean, I was able to play in the pool and sing and dance and stay up late at night chatting with girls my age. And I was so happy. I was so happy. I was free. It felt exhilarating. And my spirit was just jumping with joy. And then I got a taste of that bitterness that I was so used to because my stepmom, for some reason, had convinced my father that I was staying in a barracks uh, situation and sleeping with servicemen in this home of my friend's parents. I mean, it was absolutely absurd, the accusations that were coming from her, but I was hearing through him because he was very concerned and I mean rightfully so uh, and he was calling repeatedly because she had him so worked up this is when I realized distance couldn't save me from her wrath and I remember going to the grocery store uh, it's a Safeway on East Avenue in Chico and I was with my friend's mom and we walk in and we're in the produce department and I, I'm looking around and I look back at her and I make eye contact and I say, I really like this place. I think me and my dad could start a brand new life here. And that's all I could think about. All I could think about was saving him and saving myself and starting new. I came home to that tiny office room that I shared with my father and I rolled my bedspread out on the floor just daydreaming of what life could be like in Northern California. But my dad was not on board. And I could tell that my pleas and my incessant talking about this idea was really starting to annoy him. And that's when my survival instincts kicked in and I let go of that dream. But less than a month later, my friend's parents met with my father, toting along a stack of paperwork. And little did I know that that was the beginning. They were building my cocoon. My father put ink to paper and signed me over. I became a ward of the state of California, which means that the state determined my parents were not fit to care for me, and he relinquished rights, uh, and I became a foster child. But instead of going into the foster care program, my friend's parents became my legal guardians. This was the best, most heartfelt decision he could have ever made for me and my future. I just want to give some background about these two amazing individuals who have no blood relation to my family whatsoever, yet swooped in to save me, literally save my life. Now, remember in part one of my story, I mentioned that my father married my stepmom two days before my birthday, and that this date became a portal for me into a parallel universe. 
Well, these two incredible humans who became my second chance at a loving and healing parental relationship were also married two days before my birthday. Early on in their relationship, they had said yes to an opportunity to become group home parents at a therapeutic residential treatment center for emotionally disturbed teenage girls. So teenage females who had been through abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, they were not married yet. (laughs) And they decided that they wanted to step in and help heal these young women in this treatment facility as the kind of stand-in parental figures. So not only do they have hearts of gold, pure gold, but they had experience and practical knowledge of interfacing with and being responsible for young traumatized women. If this isn't an example of the divine's master plan, I don't know what is. All I can say is it was absolutely orchestrated beyond anything that I could have fathomed, anything my father could have fathomed. It was, it was meant to be. And I am forever grateful for this realignment in my life. But let's get back to the story. So they immediately moved me and my few belongings in with them through the rest of the school year. They had already had plans to travel abroad over the summer. And so they made arrangements for me to stay with another friend until they returned. And then we made the big move up to Chico and enrolled me in public school, which I hadn't gone to public school since I was single digits. I also auditioned for two local dance companies because dance had been um, a budding passion of mine uh, at this creative um, performing arts private school that that I was going to and that I met my friend at. So her parents knew that uh, I was creative and that movement was very healing for me. And I was accepted into the ballet company as an apprentice. Um, School was a shock for me. (laughs) There were a lot of kids, a lot of personalities, and a lot of challenges. I thought that it was cool to wear my pajamas to school. And I wanted to show as much of my stomach as possible. Um, There was a learning curve. And there was definitely a learning curve. Because even though I came from, you know, a very um, challenging, abusive childhood, I I was really immature because I, I hadn't had the time to interface with others. I was not learning what was acceptable with my peers or how to interface with, with kids my age. Um, so there were a lot of challenges that came with this transition, but I really found my place at the dance studio. Movement was, and always has been my love language. And I process so much emotional energy through dance. And there were quite a few pieces of my childhood that created chaos for my teenage mind. Imprints were, were coming up in response to quote unquote, normal uh, situations, but I never really experienced normal. So these situations were coming up and my reactions were extremely inflamed, um, extremely survival driven, and uh, the emotions were just through the roof. I started acting out quite a bit at school. 
I got suspended twice in two years and I was pushing the limits like most teenagers do, but I had a heightened sense of independence and rebellion that at one point pushed my foster mom to the edge and she took me into the foster agency and I remember being so angry and so afraid and I knew she was going to give up on me. And so I walked out of that office and I grabbed my bike out of the back of her truck and I took off and I, I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, but there was no way that I was going to go back to San Diego. There was no way that I was going to go back to my stepmom. And I decided to live with my best friend and her junkie mom in a two bedroom apartment for about a month. And during this time, my foster parents started taking county-funded parenting classes that included trauma professionals uh, such as Brian Post. And my foster mom to this day credits these classes for learning how to communicate with not only me, but how to reparent herself and her own children. My foster parents came to the dance studio one night and promised that they were not going to send me back. And I willingly collected my things from my friend's place and went home. And I switched schools at that point uh, in between my junior and senior year. I graduated without suspension and I walked straight into California State University, Chico. I really used that time to kind of get my shit together because I matured emotionally thankfully. And they started to implement practices and ways of um, interacting with me that soothed my nervous system. So my reactions were not as inflamed. I could start using more of my prefrontal cortex, actually logically thinking through things rather than responding through trauma. And at this point, my dad was homeless and he had been homeless for a few years and he was living on the streets of San Diego. And somehow we managed to stay in contact here and there, random phone calls, Facebook messages, and same thing happened with my biological mom. She had gotten wind of what was going on with me and she reached out at one point she even put me on her cell phone plan and sent me a phone that happened in high school and it continued to happen as I as I moved into my college experience during college I took a few road trips to San Diego but I rarely saw my dad for more than an hour because I would go down there with friends we weren't trying to have a sad time we were trying to have a fun time And to be honest, being around him was really disappointing. It was really sad to see my father, my knight in shining armor, so worn down and clearly always under the influence and sleeping on the street. You know, that's that's a really hard thing to witness. I really think that that sums up the relationship we had during this time. I was always trying to find him. I was trying to find the him that I had attached to as a child and the loving father that I knew he was deep down. 
But every time I poured energy into that endeavor, into believing his facade of clarity and growth, his inevitable folly brought me to my knees over and over and over again. And he was no longer recognizable. You know, he was a worn and withering shell of grief and strife and numbed pain. And so my defense was to turn cold and I cut off communication. I decided to protect myself. I just, I, I couldn't keep breaking my own heart. I had things to do. <laughs> I was really trying to live the opposite life of what I had grown up around, which was, you know, to go to college, to, to find success. Basically, I just, I didn't want to be a drunk. I didn't want to be a druggie. I didn't want to be sleeping, you know, on the ground. I really was focused on stability and security. But at the same time, I always had the soft spot in my heart for him. So months would go by with me being cold and I would unblock him. And I would see the messages that promised a grand rising. And I would swell with hope that maybe, just maybe, this time it was going to be different. This time he was really coming back to himself. This time he was really coming back to me. That was the long lost desire at its core. The hope that he would finally choose healing and choose himself and choose me. And I just couldn't give up on him. No matter how many times I tried, no matter how many disapproving opinions I heard from those close to me, I always built the wall with small holes to keep an eye on him. And although no longer nourishing and no longer protective, definitely no longer present, our bond felt unbreakable. And so I learned to live independently. I learned to be my own nourishment my own protection, my own presence. And this created an interesting push-pull mentality in the way that I viewed family and attachment in general. So while I was and am extremely grateful for my foster parents and all of the healing that they provided during this challenging decade of my life, I also didn't allow them to get too close. And I didn't allow myself to lean on them fully for support or attachment. In retrospect, this was my way of saving a seat for my father, while also protecting myself from what I had learned was the inevitable pain and letdown associated with attaching to others. And it caused a lot of challenges in my ability to connect with people, friends, family, lovers. I mean, my failed marriage <laughs> was included, which is a story for another time, but Essentially, that marriage was a trauma response. That was a full pendulum swing to, quote unquote, secure myself with the furthest that I could from instability. Those were decisions that were made deeply, deeply rooted in fear. But going back to my relationship with my father, this back and forth continued into my late 20s. Then something pretty amazing started to unfold he was emailing more often. He was sending photos of himself and his new girlfriend, who was someone he had gone to high school with in La Jolla. Uh, he was talking about visiting me in Northern California, which he had never brought up before. And he had never been to Northern California, not 
for my high school graduation, not for my college graduation, not for my wedding. So my hopes weren't too high, but it was the thought that I was impressed by, that he was coherent enough to be trying to plan for more connection with me. Now, he was claiming sobriety as usual, but I had to admit he actually looked happy in these photos. You know, he was living in La Jolla, walking on the beach and watching the sunset every afternoon. He was growing huge plumeria plants, which were his favorite. He was shopping at the farmer's market and eating well. The transformation was visible. And even though there was a little voice in the back of my head telling me it was too good to be true, to not get my hopes up, to barricade my heart. I couldn't help but feel elated about this glimmer of life force in his eyes. And after over a year about uh, of consistent communication and positivity, I decided it was time to visit him in person. I flew down to San Diego and coordinated a surprise reunion with his girlfriend And I agreed to dinner at one of their favorite local beach shacks. And as I drove through La Jolla, my heart was beating out of my chest. My hands were trembling. My instincts were telling me to turn around. And I really wanted to see him, but I was terrified by how fragile I felt. I hadn't seen him in more than eight years. And nearly every cell in my body wanted to curl up in my cocoon and stay safe there. But I parked. And I waited, trying to catch my breath, dabbing the sweat off my upper lip. I finally got out of the car and I headed toward the restaurant. I walked in and I looked around and there he was, a full glass of beer sitting in front of him. And that sobriety facade came crashing down and the alarm bells started going off in my head. And then he looked up and he smiled without recognition. And I moved toward him and asked if the seat next to him was taken. And he said, no, go ahead. And then he stared at me until I smiled. And he said, oh, my baby girl. He stood up slowly and embraced me in a very tight hug. And we stayed that way for a while. It felt like eons. It was probably three to four minutes. But (laughs) we finally pulled apart and we were both soggy with tears. I spent the rest of the evening in deep conversation and uh, we moved the reunion back to his girlfriend's place where he lit a fire uh, on the back patio and we reconnected as the sky turned to starry darkness. And he walked me to my rental car that night and uh, he gave me the biggest hug I think I've ever received in my life. And it was like all the missed hugs of my childhood wrapped tightly around my ribcage. I am so grateful that some force nudged me to walk toward that table. I'm so proud of that scared little girl who showed up with such courage and vulnerability because that hug alone was totally worth it. We had breakfast together the next morning and spent that afternoon catching up and just enjoying each other. And life had really done a number on him. I mean, his body was beat down. He was so skinny and his skin, he had just the deepest lines in his face, but his soul 
was happy. I left San Diego with a new perspective and acceptance of him, and more importantly, our relationship. After years of fiercely protecting myself and my heart, yet also feeling like I had to parent my parent, I finally found a sense of deep peace in our reunited energies. And that was the longest in-person experience I would have with my father in my adult life. After that visit, our communication grew and we were emailing at least weekly. Um, and he would send handwritten letters often, uh, birthday cards and holiday cards were a top priority. <laughs> and, uh, and I saved every one of them because I loved it. <laughs> His effort was finally coming through and I felt that love that soul that I had connected with as a toddler when it was just him and I. A year and a half after my visit, his girlfriend's nephew committed suicide, which triggered a heavy regression period flooded with deep guilt and excruciating grief. And I could feel it through his waning communication, and I tried my best to hold space for his pain. Early November 2019, I received a call from Scripps Memorial Hospital in La Jolla. My father was in a coma, and it shook my world. And what followed was the cracking of my cocoon. So I will continue this in part three of my story. Sending you so much love and gratitude, and I hope that you are finding peace and bliss in your journey wherever you are today. I really look forward to sharing part three of my story, The Great Metamorphosis, that has gotten me here to this healing, to this energy, to this understanding, understanding of who I am and how I can show up to be of service to this world. Have a wonderful week. Ci vediamo.